Well, good morning, church. Hey, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Jeff, and I'm one of the pastors here. What an exciting morning we've had so far. Wow, this is awesome. It's been so amazing just to get to worship, to be together with the risen Christ who is among us, who's with us right now. And as we transition now into the worship of hearing his word, I want to just pray together, as we always do, and lift up the different prayers that people have entrusted to us this week. So would you join me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for life in you. Thank you for communion and for baptism and what they mean, the deep truths embedded in them. Lord, we thank you this morning that we have life in you because you gave it to us as a gift. I pray, Lord, as we hear your word, that you would please fill us with your spirit. Would you take these words and apply them to our hearts as you know that each one of us needs to hear them. And Father, we think of people this morning who have entrusted themselves to our prayers, people who just had surgery, people who are struggling, or people who need you, and we lift them up to you right now in our hearts. We pray for your blessing, for your care, for your healing for them. And for our friends this morning who need to work, we pray that in their work, you would bring blessing to them, Lord, and your unique presence among them today. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in John chapter 6 this morning, so you could turn there or tap there if you have your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, we would love for you to have one this morning. You can find them in the corners of the room, in the back corners, in the middle, and then along the front. This is going to be a really good passage to have the Bible open in front of you because I'm going to walk through it a few verses at a time. If you don't have a readable Bible at home, please take one with you so that you have one. We want you to be able to be in the Word of God throughout the week. Nothing could be more important than that. This morning, we're going to continue our series looking at these I am statements of Jesus. We're going to dive into another one this morning. So far, we've looked at before Abraham was, I am. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And this morning, we're going to hear Jesus say, I am the bread of life. Each one of these statements was vitally important for the people who originally heard it. And it's just as vitally important for us this morning to hear Jesus. Jesus spoke these I am statements as powerful metaphors of his own self-disclosure. This was Jesus saying, this is me. This is what I am like. This is my identity. And whether we know it or feel it this morning, nothing could be more important for each one of us than to get what he is saying, than to grasp it, to understand how he is revealing himself. But unfortunately, getting that, grasping it, understanding it can feel daunting. It can feel challenging. Jesus wants us to know him. He wants us to know him clearly as he revealed himself. And so he has used metaphors. He's created metaphors of ordinary things, things that we can all understand. This morning, bread. We all know what bread is. These things are within our reach and they're memorable. We desperately need to hear Jesus this morning and what he is saying. Each one of us in the room comes to these I am statements that he spoke with an already established internal set of ideas and images 
about who Jesus is. We already have ideas and images and beliefs about who Jesus is that we bring beforehand, before we hear him say, I am. We have those within us, and those are our he is statements. All of us has he is statements within us, preconceived notions about who he is. That's true both within the church and it's true outside of the church. It's true for people who are deciding that I want to give my life to Jesus. My allegiance is his. I want to live for his kingdom and grow as his apprentice. And it's true for those who have rejected Jesus outright or for those who are just indifferent to who he is. Everyone has he is statements within, especially in our place of the world. Everyone knows Jesus is someone. The question is, who is he? And there are marketers that a lot of us will see later on today in the game who will be telling us things that we need, potentially things about him. Marketers and politicians, artists, YouTubers, people we live near, people we work with or go to school with, all of those people have their own he is statements about Jesus. And those statements have impacted us. They have impacted our own hearts and what it is that we believe about Jesus. The point I'm trying to make right now is that as we hear this statement this morning, I am the bread of life, none of us in the room comes to that statement to receive it from a blank slate. None of us does. We have prior knowledge of him. And as we hear him speak, we will need to decide if we will let his voice overrule the other voices that we've heard including our own voice, the voice within? Will we allow him to fill in the gaps of our understanding with how he chooses to reveal himself? Will we believe him? That's the life-altering question that he has before us this morning. Will we believe him? Will we trust him? As we look at this passage, we're going to see that believing in Jesus, he taught, that believing in him results in ordinary human beings receiving the eternal kind of life right now, a totally new way of existing that has very different results than the normal kind of life. It's an undying life that our hearts long for and our hearts were made for. As we come to John 6 this morning, some very exciting things are happening. I just want to briefly tell you two of them because what we're going to read won't make sense without them. The first one is that Jesus had just done a very abnormal thing. There's a large crowd of 5,000 people, and he took five barley loaves and two fish and fed all of those people, all the 5,000. And not only did they eat enough till they were full, but when they counted what was left over, they had 12 basketfuls left. So that's the first thing. Very out of the ordinary, very exciting. The second thing absolutely freaked his disciples out of their mind. They had gone out on a boat and were crossing the sea when suddenly Jesus comes walking on rough waves and wind in the dark to their boat. Three or four miles he walked to them and got in the boat. And then they were across to the other side. So one, he took what shouldn't have been enough food and made enough food. And two, He did something that humans are not supposed to be able to do. He walked on water to his disciples, scaring them. They were frightened by it. Now I want to pick up chapter 6, John 6, verse 22. We're going to read a few verses. 
On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I want us to see three things at this point from what we just read. The first one is that word is spreading among the people because of the things that Jesus was doing. Word was spreading among them. He had just fed 5,000 people with five loaves. And they're looking for him. And they're obviously very confused. The categories that they had for him in their mind were not great enough. They weren't big enough. Their imagination could not have fathomed what he was up to. And they wonder where he is. And how did you get here? Because who would have thought, oh, he just walked. He just walked across the sea. So that's the first thing. Second, their understanding of him and what they had seen of him needed to be interpreted. It needed to be taught because they weren't understanding who he was. They needed to go deeper in their grasp of his identity. They didn't know him yet as he truly would reveal himself to be. Those miraculous signs needed him to interpret them for him. And then third, I want us to notice how Jesus in this section teaches them about themselves. Listen to what he says. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. The word signs throughout the Gospel of John is a special word. It means more than just miracle. It means more than just miraculous sign or event. It is actually something that is meant to point right at Jesus. It's a pointer or like an icon that you tap on. It is meant to signify his power in a very unique way. They were important because of who they pointed to. The signs were not important in and of themselves. The important thing wasn't that Jesus can make as much food as we could ever want. The important thing was who he was and what he was revealing about who he was by turning the bread into way more food than they could have imagined. So Jesus, in love, tells this crowd of people what their heart is actually desiring. He reveals to them, you just want more bread. I did a sign that was meant to point to me, and you just want to eat more. So you're coming after me for more bread. This is so important for us to hear this morning, because Jesus continues to do this heart-revealing work, revealing motives and desires and the things that we long for that are not him. He continues to do that among us. Even this morning, he will do that. And as Jesus reveals more of who he is, he reveals to us more of who we are. As we come to Jesus and get to know him better, he teaches us who we actually are as well. We get self-revelation as we receive his revelation of himself. 
And growing in knowledge of Jesus just deepens that as we continue to follow him. He will give us insight into our motives. He'll give us insight into our hearts. And often, the insight he gives us into our hearts is about things that we had never noticed before about us, even though they had been there all along. I know this, this continues to happen to me as I follow Jesus. I will suddenly become aware that in some way, I'm seeking his gifts over him. I'm seeking what he gives me more than him. That like the prodigal son in Luke 15, I want my father's inheritance, but I could care less about my father. Part of how Jesus loves each one of us is by peeling back the layers of our own hearts. He does this not to make us feel horrible about ourselves or to cause us to wallow in our sin. He peels back those layers and reveals to us what's actually going on within so that we can be free, so that we can actually go after the thing that will actually bring us the life that we so long for, the life that only he can give us. So before we continue reading in John 6, I want to ask a question that I think might help us see ourselves in the way Jesus is leading us in this passage. He may use this question to give us insight into how our hearts are still somewhat like the hearts in that crowd of people. Here's the question. How do you react? What does your heart do when you feel deprived of one of God's gifts to you? Take, for example, his gift of rest or his gift of recreation and play. Both recreation and rest are gifts from him for us to enjoy. And both of them are ways that God intends for us to know and love him more. One way that we can gain insight into how our hearts functionally relate to those gifts is by considering what happens within when those things were deprived of them in some way. So when someone interrupts or when someone disrupts our recreation or our rest, what happens? Do our hearts respond with sinful anger, with impatience, with a will to harm whatever it is that is disrupting the thing that we want? If so, then we know that our hearts are pursuing rest or recreation, or any of his gifts in a way that causes us to seek life from the gift instead of life from the giver. We end up seeking the gift instead of the giver who actually has the life that we need. Again, this is not meant to make us feel horribly guilty. It is meant to reveal to us what it is that we truly need. And what we truly need is only going to be found in him. Let's keep reading. Picking up in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus continues his heart work here. He continues to show them, this is what's going on in your heart right now. This is what's happening within you. 
there are two types of food, two types of pursuits, things that we go after. There's a food that will perish, a food that will spoil, and there's a food that will endure. One is temporary and the other is eternal. And notice, notice, don't miss this, that Jesus is again focusing. He wants their eyes to be on him. He is putting himself at the center of this. Don't miss me. I am what you need. He needs them to focus on them because he is the one who can give them this food. He lets them know that. You want this food? The Son of Man will give it to you. He's making himself indispensable. He says that they need something that it will endure to eternal life, and I am the one who can give it to you. They need him. This food is something that he gives to them. Did you notice that? He said he gives it to them. The food from Jesus is a grace given, not a wage earned. It's a grace given, not a wage earned. And grace is not easy for human beings to understand. Our default setting is one of earning and achieving and accomplishing. We do this thing and we get that thing. Jesus is unveiling a much deeper and enduring truth. The most important thing, the most essential nourishment that we need is a food that comes to us only and exclusively as a gift. The most important, the most essential food that we need comes to us only as a gift of God's grace to us. We can have it only by receiving it with empty hands from him, which means, again, we are completely dependent upon him for it. We are completely dependent upon him for it. And that utter and total dependence is pretty uncomfortable. I mean, we know it. Where we live, where we do life, independence and self-sufficiency are of the highest ideals of grown-upness. Yet Jesus is saying, actually, you are completely and 100% dependent upon me for the thing that you need most in life. Look again how they respond to him. They say, what, what must we do? They're missing it. They're not getting it. They're still thinking in terms of human achievement. They're hearing and responding and saying, okay, if there's a better, more enduring food, tell us what we need to do to get it. So Jesus, lovingly to them and to us, moves out of the realm of metaphor and states very plainly for them and for us what he means. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Here again, Jesus' identity is the central focus. This is the key to all of this. He is what the powerful signs were pointing to. He calls them away from human accomplishment and human acquisition, getting more stuff to get what they desire to a dependent and expectant trust that they could receive from him what they need. That means they must believe. And that word believe is really important if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying here. Expectant trust, dependent trust on him. More on believing in a few minutes. I want to continue reading. Jesus, the crowd continues in verse 30. 
So they said to, them, to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now they are beginning to wake up. If they are to trust this man's teaching, they need to know who he is. They are awakening to the importance of what he's been saying all along. His identity is what's important. So they ask him for a sign that they believe will reveal to them who he actually is. Remember where we started, though. These were people who not only saw the sign of Jesus taking the five loaves and multiplying it, they ate it for themselves. They experienced that sign. And now they're talking about manna. When they bring up manna, their minds are thinking about Israel's exodus from Egypt. Ancient Israel was enslaved to Egypt and God miraculously freed them through plagues that no human being could do. And as they were freed from Egypt, they came up to a sea. And even the sea was not too much for God because he parted the sea and they walked right through the sea to freedom. And as soon as they got on the other side, they realized we need water and we need food. We don't have any. The Israelites began grumbling to Moses, who then went to God, and God's answer for their need, for their grumbling, was grace. His answer for their need was manna, manna from heaven. Two key ideas I want us to hear about this, the manna from heaven. First, let's read in Exodus 16.4. It should be on the screen. This is what God said, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven, for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I might test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So the first thing is that manna was meant to build a daily dependence upon God into God's people. God did not allow them to store it up, except for one day a week, the sixth day, they could take two helpings, two portions worth of the manna that came every morning, so that on the seventh day, they had enough for that day. But every other day of the week, God provided enough for that day, and they were to take it. He put this daily portion in front of them so that they would learn dependence upon him, and they would learn that he is provider. He is sovereign. He is gracious, and he will give them what they need each day. So each day, they looked to him for more manna. But manna was not merely about bread. Manna was about God. Manna was about them learning who their source of life is and who their Savior is. Each day he gave them manna, the gift of his grace. The second thing to know about manna is that manna also pointed to the true bread of heaven. Manna itself was a sign and a signifier pointing to what Jesus is talking about, something that God would provide and not Moses. Let's keep reading. John 6, 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Notice again, Jesus makes this all about him. 
all about him. First, he makes it clear that the bread of God is not a thing. The bread of God is not a substance. The bread of God is a person. The bread of God is a he. This is a truth that each of us needs daily reminding of. Our desires and our longings point not to a thing that we need, more stuff or a better circumstance, but to a person that we were made for. Our longings and our desires point to a person. We think that we're starving for something, but we're actually starving for someone. Second, Jesus reveals more of who he is by talking about God and his relationship with God. So if you've been following Jesus for a while, you may have read that with me and totally skipped over this, but look at how Jesus refers to God. My father. That is not normal. That was not normal for the Jews at the time to be saying that in the way that he said that. So he's again pointing them that he has a unique relationship with God. He calls him father And he also says he came from heaven. He was sent by God from heaven. That's unbelievable. Again, that would have broke their brain. It would have broke their imagination. They couldn't have imagined that a human being could say the things that he was saying and that they would actually be true. Why? Because of the he is statements that they already had within him. They already had a notion of what this person could be And what he was saying about himself didn't add up. Especially for them, the part about being from heaven. That seems to be the thing that really triggered them. You can see it actually later on in John 6. It's that truth that he is from heaven that gets them grumbling within themselves. Because after all, they know who Jesus is. He is Joseph's son. He is Mary's son. Those are those he is statements they had within them. There's no way he could be from heaven because he is their son and we know them. He just couldn't be. They give more weight to their personal insight, to his divine revelation to them, his I am statements. The last thing I want us to see in what we just read, this last section here, is what they asked him for. I want to commend what they said for our use. They say, give us this bread always. Give us this bread always. This strikes me as something that we should be asking him for all the time. Every day we need fresh manna. Every day we need a fresh infusion of Christ's nourishment for our souls. What we have of him today will not be enough for tomorrow. We need to come to him again and again and again every day for what we need They said, give us this bread always. Doesn't that sound a lot like what Jesus taught us to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. I wonder how this teaching this morning could deepen the way we use that request from him to mean more than the gifts of God, but the giver. Give us this bread today, this bread being a person. Finally, we're we're coming here now to the culmination of Jesus' self-revelation to them in this section. As I read it, I want you to notice how Jesus, with increasing clarity, unveils the metaphor and he starts to speak very plainly to them so that they don't miss it. Picking up in verse 35. 
Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You notice how Jesus is going from metaphor that they weren't getting to stating it very plainly and directly to them? First, he clarified that not only does he give them the bread, and not only is the bread a person, but he is that bread and he is that person. Second, having clarified that he is the bread, he clarifies that each of us who comes to him, comes to him, shall not hunger. And then he clarifies even more what he means by come to him by saying, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is going to great lengths to teach them and to teach us that he is the one that we need more than anything else. He is the source of life. When you have him, you have no more hunger and no more thirst because you have abundance. If they will not come to him because they do not believe him. I want to circle back now to the centrality of believing in Jesus because this is where I think in our place in the world, in our time in the world, where we are liable to get hung up. To believe in Jesus the way that he calls us to, we must also believe Jesus. I want to make a distinction here between believing in Jesus and believing Jesus because I think it's possible to have one and to totally miss the other, but we need both. We need to both believe in him and we need to believe him. And if we don't get this, we'll end up thinking that believing in Jesus is something other than what Jesus meant in this, in this passage here. Remember what I said earlier, earlier, earlier that what Jesus meant by believe was active and dependent trust receiving from him. But culturally, the way believe in Jesus is often used is more like saying, acknowledge Jesus. And what is meant by that is acknowledge the arrangement that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. So people acknowledge that fact about Jesus and then they get on with their life. But acknowledgement of Jesus is way too thin. That is not what he means here. I think that's what the crowd was doing. When Jesus said, you have seen me and yet you do not believe, they had seen the miraculous sign. They were acknowledging the sign happened. But they didn't believe him when he was telling them about himself. To believe in Jesus the way he was calling them to, they first had to believe him that he was telling them the truth. They needed to believe that he knew more about himself and themselves than they did. They couldn't do that, though. 
They could not do that because that would mean surrendering their control. That would mean submitting to him. That would mean giving up their sense of what made sense and what was possible, their preconceptions of who he was. That would mean giving up their own he is statements. To believe in Jesus is to come to an end of self-justification and self-atonement. It's to see and rely on him growing in our understanding that it's his abundant grace that we need every day. Jesus even includes that believing in him as one of the things that we are dependent on the Father for. Even that believing in him is something that is an act of grace to us. It is a gift from him that we could trust him. This morning, if you find yourself in Christ, believing him and believing in him, it is because of his abundant mercy to you. And it is only because of his abundant mercy that you will remain in him. All of it is a gift. Even the believing and the believing in him is a gift. I want to spend our last few moments here on verse 40 because it's with this sentence that Jesus sums up his teaching in his most direct way. just want to reread it. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. Doesn't that also sound a bit like the Lord's Prayer? Yeah, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Your kingdom come. God the Father sent Jesus to earth to do his will, and that is what Jesus did with every breath and moment of his life. He did his Father's will. He loved doing his will. And this is his will as a reminder that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Everyone. Everyone. Not just ethnic Israel or any other ethnicity. Not just the wealthy. Not just the poor. Not just men and not just women. Not just children. Not just the athletic or the non-athletic. No other way of stratifying the human race. Everyone. Everyone who looks upon him and believes will have life. That, that phrase, eternal life, is so important. It's like the phrase, believe in Jesus, that if we're not careful, we'll miss and diminish what Jesus is saying when he said it. It literally means, eternal life, when Jesus uses it, literally means the life of the age to come. Life of the age to come. It's not just this life that goes on and on and on and on forever, but an entirely new kind of life, the eternal kind of life. And this eternal kind of life is qualitatively different than this life. It's better than this life. One of the qualities of it is that it's undying. It's indestructible. And later on in John, Jesus actually tells us what eternal life is. He says this in John 17, 3. And you're going to recognize this probably if you've been here because we say this one a lot. It is so important. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice that he says nothing about length of time, nothing about spatial location. He didn't say heaven. 
Instead, he clarifies that eternal life, the eternal kind of life, is ongoing relational connection with God the Father and with him, Jesus, as persons. It's personal. We were made for ongoing living fellowship with God, and that's what we receive from Jesus as we come to him in faith. Importantly, this eternal kind of life does not begin when we die. It begins today. It begins when you put your trust in Jesus and it goes on into eternity. The eternal kind of life is available for ordinary human beings in our ordinary lives today, right now. He is the bread of life for today and tomorrow and for the day after that, on into eternity. Jesus promises all who believe in him will have eternal life, the life of the age to come now, and I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up on the last day. He says that phrase four times in this chapter. Very abnormal. If you do a search on it, you won't really find it many other places in the New Testament. He just doesn't say that. He wanted them to get the kind of hope that he is offering is resurrection hope. This is not eternal life in the way that it is often conceived. This is resurrection life. One theologian has called it life after life after death. Life after death in the ordinary sense that people mean it is that the soul goes on and we live a disembodied life in a non-spatial heaven, an immaterial heaven. That's what a lot of people mean by life after death. And Jesus is saying, that is not what I mean. I don't mean that. I mean real life, resurrected life with me forever living on a new earth a new sort of physicality in which our flesh will not decay or break down anymore. It will go on forever. Jesus' resurrection is the first of many. And he is promising that for us. If you want to look more at that, we don't have time to unpack that this morning. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and Revelation 21, if you're taking note, are great places to read to explore that in more depth. I just wanted to introduce that idea this morning, though, because I want us to hear that what Jesus is offering is better than what we often think he is offering. It's deeper and more rich than what we think he is offering. So where does that leave us then? Where does that leave us in this passage? How do they respond to this powerful teaching? Well, sadly, they grumble. They grumble. So Jesus, again, lovingly and plainly says in verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And then in verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Listen to this. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Did you notice he had been very clear, stating plainly what he meant, and now he's transitioning back to metaphor. The word believe in me transitions to eat me, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they cannot handle that. That is just too much. That's way beyond. John tells us later on in the chapter, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him after they heard that. This I am the bread of life self-revelation could not coexist with their own he is statements that they held so dearly. He had made himself 
indispensable, not optional. And he emphasized the primacy of his grace to them if they were going to have life. It's doubtful that any of them would have caught the meaning of the bread I give for the life of the world is my flesh. They wouldn't have understood what he meant at all. But we do. We catch what he meant. We were singing about it this morning. He would give himself up on the cross. His death for their life. His wounds for their healing. We need this bread of life continually. Not just once and done, but over and over and over, we need the nourishment of Christ. Our souls were designed for continuous nourishment, and when we don't, when we don't seek and we don't find it in Him, we will look elsewhere. Our hearts will look elsewhere for what we crave. And in looking outside of Jesus for nourishment, we can come, become convinced that what we really need is a new something. Or what we really need is a new circumstance. But what we really need, church, is a person. What we really need is Him. Nothing of this world can truly satisfy us the way that He does. Our longings, our cravings, our deepest desires are meant to point us to the true bread of life. Our inability to be truly satisfied with anything in this world is a really good thing, even though it doesn't always feel like it's a really good thing. Our discontent hearts could give us insight into our deep need of a person. Contentment and fullness are found only in Him. And my prayer this morning, and as I was preparing this message for everyone in the room, myself included, is that our internal he is statements would be transformed to clo more closely match Jesus's I am statement. That by his grace, when we hear him say to us personally, I am the bread of life, we would respond in our own hearts, he is the bread of life. He is my bread of life. Lord, give us this bread always. Let's pray. Father, we need you. Stir in our hearts. Awaken in us desires that we know have not been fulfilled in this world. They will never be fulfilled in this world because we were made for you and your son. Lord, fill us with your spirit afresh in this moment. Give us the gift of faith and trust. We are dependent creatures, Lord. We look to you as provider. Give us the true bread of life anew and afresh this morning. Jesus, thank you for giving your life for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.